Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. Hey, it's Tommy from Ops Analytica. You know, when we have new clients uh, talking to us and they are figuring out if they want to have an operations management platform like Ops Analytica in their business, one of the big sort of emotional hurdles they have to kind of get through is what we call the big brother conundrum, right? And what that is, is that they want more visibility, more control at the shift level. They want to know that their employees are doing what they're supposed to be doing and they're doing them at the right time. They want all of that, what we'll call big brother stuff, right? But at the same time, they don't want to be perceived as being big brother. Nobody wants to be the Stalin of their 20 location chain, right? And so what we tell them is don't focus on the control aspect of things, focus on the data, right? You want more data on every part of your operation so that you can make better decisions and you can make those better decisions faster so that you can get rid of the things in your business that are impacting sales, profits, and customer satisfaction. And making data-driven decisions is probably the biggest thing you can do to positively impact your profitability, right? So focus on the data. It's all about the data. And by the way, though, if you're collecting all this data, you're going to get some of those other big brother things that you wanted on the side for free, okay? So learn how you can get better data to make better decisions and be more profitable. Contact us for a demo at opsanalytica.com. Hey there, Order Up Show. It's Tommy Yanolis back with another episode. Please welcome to the show, Brian Kirby. How you doing, Brian? Oh, Tommy, doing great. Uh, sure appreciate you inviting uh, me today after we met at the CRA show, and uh, th thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. CRA for everybody is Colorado Restaurant Association. Uh, we just had our, uh, our annual show uh, down at the uh, Denver Convention Center. It was really good. Um, so, uh, Brian, here's the deal. Uh, we're going to ask you five questions today. I might throw a sixth question in. We're going to have a great conversation. And let's just kick it off right now with question number one, my favorite question. Explain what you do today, then take us through your career progression from your first job until now. And Tommy, it's been a great career. 39 years, almost 40 years uh, by the end of this year. It started way back in 1983. Um, my brother's best friend was building a restaurant uh, in, in Kirksville, Missouri. No, it's uh, extreme northern Missouri. And I remember I was a, a junior in high school. Uh, there weren't jobs to be had during that time. And if you, you can't imagine that today with not being able to find any labor in the industry, I remember begging him just for any job he could give me. And uh, he gave me a dishwasher job. And uh, that's how I got in the industry. But now what I do today, uh, 39 years later, throughout all that, I've been a restaurant consultant for U.S. Foods for the last eight years. And uh, I'm one of about 60 in the nation I uh, cover with another restaurant consultant for U.S. Foods, uh, Colorado, and a lot of Wyoming. And what we do is for our customers and prospects, uh, I help them with profit efficiency. I help them with culture and leadership. I help them with cost controls. 
all the way down to the PL level, basically help them make it, uh, Tommy. Uh, so many of our independent operators don't have a big support team, sometimes don't have a, a great CPA or financial person in their life. And what we try to do is put enough points on the board or to make their life run a little bit easier so uh, they get to what their dreams were when they started their restaurant and went into this industry. Um, so that's kind of what I do right now. Nice. And then take me through your career progression, just so you can hide, go, you can hit the big bullet points of it. So you started as a dishwasher in the early 80s, and then sort of did you go into the corporate restaurants or independence? Kind of take us through that process. You know, Tommy, I did, and I'm pretty humble in my background. I uh, really did all the positions in independent diners, uh, ended up running uh, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week uh, restaurants, uh, one of that probably 1% or 2% of the restaurateurs that – probably maybe that stupid or foolish to do so where there never was a stop button. Um, so I ran uh, really a place called Pancake City for about 21 years. We had some other business interests, did a banquet restaurant as well, uh, did uh, everything from line cooking and different things. It was in a college town. And uh, uh, so did that, uh, loved doing that. I was fortunate that uh, my owner at there treated me as a partner and also knew that we had no mentors. We really knew no more than what we had uncovered ourselves in our own local careers in a rural area. And he started a paying to send me to the National Restaurant Show every year and the other uh, different types of conferences. Back in those days, there was no internet. Sure. So you either learned it by having mentors uh, or you learned it by uh, uh, buying books or reading articles or going in person. And so for about 10 years, he sent me and I got to hear the best people in the industry talk about the science of the industry, about leadership models, about culture. And uh, Tom, to be honest with you, it changed my whole life. I went from struggling and working all the time to knowing how to uh, duplicate myself and others and and set up a, a from a 3% profitability restaurant to a 17% profitability restaurant with about the same amount of business. Uh, it was an amazing transformation. Uh, it came to a time I'd scratched all that itch and I wanted to go make a bigger impact on our industry. At that time, I had uh, one of my salesmen that was for a company that U.S. Foods bought that went to work for them that was trying to get recruit me to go to that side to have a, a bigger presence in the industry. And at that point in 2004, I, I came over and uh, became a salesman for U.S. Foods. I uh, did that for about three and a half years. But they asked me why I came over, and I said, I came over because I want – uh, distributors to give more to independent restaurants. I want them to become more of a partner. They should provide consulting. They should provide help for people like me, the little dishwasher from Northern Missouri that had no mentors, that had nobody. Uh, we need to be pouring more into that. As the years went by, I became a business developer, a district manager over uh, six other salesmen, a division trainer for three and a half years where I hired and trained salesmen and district sales managers. And uh, then I became a director of street sales over a couple hundred million dollars of business and about 70 people underneath me. About that time, around 11 years ago, uh, U.S. Foods started to investigate what we should be to our customers. And during that time, I helped influence with several others that we should have uh, restaurant consultants full time, free to our people uh, to really help them make it. Uh, we noticed that of all of our customers that, 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 that didn't make it in the business, for the vast majority of them, if you could move their their uh, profit to sales dollar by a couple points only, uh, a lot of them would make it. 
And uh, and so thus was born our restaurant consulting job that I've I've kept uh, for the last eight years. And and really, to be honest with you, Tommy, with all the hard jobs I've held, um, I haven't worked a day since. Uh, U.S. Foods just lets me. Uh, go out and help those that need help and uh, to be able to put points on their profit board to help them with operational difficulties, uh, to help their leadership and their culture. And I'm telling you, Tommy, it is wonderful. I meet people all over uh, Colorado and Wyoming uh, from uh, the top line people all the way down in mom and pops. And, and, and I love my job. Wow, that's amazing. That is truly amazing. I, I think that's such an interesting point too, right? Like, the C, like we're, you're not going in and saying, hey, look, man, I'm going to swing this thing 25 points because that's not, no one believes you, right? Like you can't go in and say, hey, we can change it 25%. Like that's not going to happen. But if we can get you an extra $1,000 a week, is that enough, right? Is that enough for you to kind of get a little bit further ahead or hire that next person or get some help? You know what I mean? Like, and sometimes it's just, it just, it just needed a little bit of a win. You know what I mean? Oh, it's an amazing transformation. Tommy, we have found through the hundreds of thousands of consults we've done over the years that almost every independent restaurant has four to six percent to sales in profit in within with their 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 current sales and their numbers. It's buried treasure in their backyard, and they just aren't using the restaurant science and processes to gain that and realize that and put it to use their operation. So it's exciting to help folks discover the money in their operation. And of course, we want to work on top line sales and everything as well. But if we just start with some of that low hanging fruit, it's already there. Recover that. Put it to use allow them to get to that next level take some stress off each other tommy that's why it's such a fun job is is really lighten the load and allowing people to get where they should because they deserve every penny absolutely well and it's interesting too because you know and, and we find this because we obviously sell you know process-based software right to the restaurants and the people who struggle with it the most are the single unit operator um the, there there's an inherent uh it's just part of being a single unit guy, I guess, uh, that mindset. I'm already here seven days a week. I don't need more systems. I'm the system, right? But, you know, you have to kind of get those guys out of that mentality and get them into that mentality, which is if you can't take a day off, then you don't actually have a business. You have like a cult of personality. You know what I mean? Like if you can't go on vacation with your family and go to Florida for a week and know that you have the systems in place and, you know, you've got the team in place and that they can manage the restaurant as good as when you're not, when you're there, then you don't have a business. And like, cause you know, like they just don't want to have systems. They just kind of fly by the seat of their pants. And I'm sure most of what you're doing with them is going, Hey man, wait a second. Like this isn't repeatable. This isn't scalable. This, you know, let's sit down, let's figure this stuff out. You know what I mean? Cause it's not all food costs, right? It's about inventory and it's about portioning. Like, you know, you guys haven't like looked, that's supposed to be a one ounce spoodle and it's a three ounce spoodle in your ranch. Switch it out. You know what I mean? You're throwing away 50 pounds of ranch a week. There's a thousand bucks or whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like, you brought up one uh, of the biggest things uh, in cost of goods. 
everybody thinks it's one of two things. It's either my vendor taking advantage of me or it's my employee screwing me over. And, yeah. and really there are 10 contributors that determine cost of goods and operators yeah. are only looking at the market forces vendor one and ignoring the nine others that only they control in their operation. And so you're right, Tommy, if just yeah. getting people to set up systems and look at that, it's amazing. And since the average independent restaurant only makes about 5% in the United States, if you can put three or four more points on the board, a lot of people, you know, if, if you put 50,000 to their bottom line, for a lot of them, that takes a million dollars in extra sales to generate that kind of profit. Uh, but we can do that just with their existing mix, their existing sales and, and processes. A lot of them say, I don't have the time. A lot of them say, I don't want to be corporate. It's like, hey, you're in this for the money too, right? Yeah. And for your family. And it's there for you if you only grab it, especially because there's so many great software solutions just like you guys have to make it easier than, than in my day, which mostly Excel spreadsheets and ledgers. Yeah. Well, and so, and it's so funny. I don't want to be corporate. I just literally, I don't know if I hit publish. I have to go look at my computer. I just published a blog today about being, uh, I call it the um, big brother conundrum, right? Because corporate is big brother. I don't want to be corporate. You know, I have two stories about that one statement. Because in what we find when we're talking to people, you know, prospects and whatever, is that a lot of the people, they have what I call the big brother conundrum, which is that, they want to be big brother in the respect of they want more accountability. They want more data. They want to see what the heck's happening. They want to be able to be a little bit more command and control than they are today with paper. Right. But yeah. they also want to be perceived as being big brother. You know what I mean? Um, but like, and so and the whole blog goes on about, Hey, don't worry about being big brother just focus on getting good data to make better decisions. And you'll get all the benefits of being big brother. I'm kind of on the back end of that whole deal, if that's what you really want. Um, but you know, it's I don't want to be corporate. I don't want to. I don't want to have systems. Well, I mean, you can. You know, I, no one's going. Hey, man, Taco Bell makes the best food in the world. That uh, Taco Bell makes you know a pretty. They do twenty percent profit margin. So yeah. you know, let's like you know, there's something to be said for like having systems in place. And, and doing it consistently, executing consistently and controlling what we can control is not corporate. That's called running a good business. And you, you know, there's, you don't get any extra points in life for, uh, you know, having a failed restaurant. That doesn't help you anywhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like have a successful business that you can go sit at the bar and talk to your customers because you know things are happening. You know, that's what you want. Especially we find the number one factor why restaurants don't make it is it's not because they didn't have good food or service. They, they simply couldn't make enough profit per dollar coming in. And, uh, yes. and, and that if you can change that, the vast majority of them can make it. And it's all within their control. That's the sad thing. Yeah, it is. And like I preach so much, control what you can control. They're, the whole world's out to kick your ass. That's, and that's been true from day one. The caveman who left the cave and a brontosaurus ate him. Guess what? You know, I don't think brontosaurus really a caveman, but whatever. You know, <laughs> something ate him. And, you know, they want the whole world's out as against is is battling. The world's hard, right? But don't make it harder on yourself. Control what you can control, um, and, and and take pride in that you're controlling what you can control, and know that that's how you beat the world. You know, I ordered. Uh, I'm not going to say the name of the company. It's a big taco chain out here. 
very fancy. And, you know, we door dash them. And I'm telling you, and I've, I've actually interviewed their chief people officer on the podcast. They're a big chain. They got over 100 units now. Um, and every other time, these idiots forget something on the order. If it doesn't fit in the original bag, it was a salad. It never makes it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, come on. You know, like, what are you guys doing? All you, your whole job is to cut this food, look at this piece of paper and put it in a bag and give it to the DoorDash guy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't, under, like, like, we've just all have sort of strayed away from that. Now, one thing I don't know if I told you when we met, because we only talked for about five minutes at the show, was my last restaurant job was at Quiznos in 2008, 2009. And the first job I had at Quiznos was I was the manager of the franchise assistance program. And so my job at the height of the financial crisis, at the height of the Quiznos implosion, I was the guy you called um, when your restaurant was going under. And I could not really help anyone. I've said that several times on the show. Uh, All I was really empowered to do was give them our delivery platform at that time, which was an online delivery platform that you could you know, go onto a website and order Quiznos and then they would drive it to your house. Like they would drive it, not like DoorDash or anything Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. Um, But that job, I will tell you, was my second MBA because I had just graduated from grad school. And, you know, the psychology of watching people whose businesses are failing was so eye-opening. You know what I mean? And just understanding what was actually happening with them and that the, the like not logical emotional decisions that they were making, it was just it was insanity. Like people would go from forty thousand in debt to eighty thousand in debt because they basically could not just throw in the towel and say, "Hey, look, I'm looking at this logically. The numbers aren't there. I'm not going to turn this around. I got to pull the plug." They needed to be fired from their dream. And yeah, the well, then they had their parents cash in investments and, and retirements yeah. and or their brothers and sisters and that and, yeah. and have them in the fray before it's all done. Yeah, sad. Yeah. They, needed to, they needed to be fired by their food vendor, their creditor, or their landlord. One of those three people would fire them eventually. And then, and then they would just go away. But they would just rack up the debt because they couldn't. They couldn't like look at it from a logical perspective and go, there's no way I can, even if I double sales, which I'm not going to do, I would still be paying off this like hole I've dug myself into for, you know, 10 more years. Like, you know, there's no ROI here. We got to stop, you know? And of course I wasn't allowed to tell anyone to stop, you know, (laughs) I had to go, Hey, send me your PNL. Let me look at it. Oh, I haven't done a PNL in a year. I fired my accountant. What? I think a lot of people just don't realize <laughs> our industry is the hardest because it, it involves the three hardest industries known to man right now because it is the hospitality industry, it's the retail industry, and it's also the manufacturing industry. And so yeah. you got to have people good at all three of those and the best strategies. And a lot of times you have a chef who's good at manufacturing, but not good at uh, at retail or, or at the hospitality, or you have a mix of people. And there's always one of those missing, and that's their undoing a lot of times. Yeah, and you left out, and you left out the. I think the fourth reason is perishability. Yeah, like if I'm making like steel widgets, steel doesn't go bad. 
You know what I mean? Like still can just sit out in the out in the yard. Yeah, perishability and volatility because everything can change at once. Your beef prices can jack up like crazy right now, or or your produce prices. And 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 you're right; it's spoiling the moment it's hitting your shelves almost. So yeah, so yeah, I think that's what makes the restaurant industry the hardest industry in the world because there's plenty of industries that are similar. They have you know like you know if you, if I don't fill that dental chair at four o'clock, I'll never get you know. March 25th at 4 p.m. back like that, you know, that kind of stuff. But once again, dental stuff doesn't go bad and and romaine does. You know what I mean? And so it's just it's tough. Um, well, that's cool. That's an exciting. That's so cool. And, and we talked about this, too. And I've been kind of preaching this to myself and to other people who listen to me, the seven of us. But like uh, that, I do think like the old model the model of the food distributor the broadline distributor model that i grew up in you know in the 80s and 90s and 2000s of we're just going to go in and cut you're a hamburger restaurant so i'm going to take a dollar off your beef price but i'm going to jack up your tomato price and you know whatever to get it back and i'm just going to trade you i'm going to trade your restaurant with uh, cisco and and us foods and shamrock the three of us are just going to trade you as a client by going in and stealing you from the other guy is a bad was a a bad model for all broadline distributors to be in and it seems like you guys have all kind of got on the same page in the last decade or so that says hey we've got to, we you know this isn't just about cost we have to add additional value to our clients to keep them and I, my, my personal opinion has been SaaS software is the best way to do that because what you can do is offer your clients a broad solution of software platforms that they can get into at a discount and then get them tied into those software solutions because, you know, configuring this stuff takes a lot of time. Configuring a new POS, configuring a new Ops Analytica, getting all your schedule stuff in. And once you get in, you learn the software, you get comfortable with it, and then all of a sudden you try to go to the next place all those software prices jack up, you know, so that all of a sudden you can kind of keep people locked in with value. But at the same time, if they decide they want to bolt, that's cool. But, you know, you're now going to have all this extra work to do, either recreating it or paying more for it. Yeah, so I'm glad this we found you put that. 50 grand to somebody's bottom line that tend to stick with you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. I, I was like you. I came from the era where distributors just took, took, took. Uh, yeah. Now it's all about making for folks, you know, and, and partnership because what distributors didn't realize for a long time, they were killed in their own golden goose. You know, yeah. they were uh, establishing relationship and then using that relationship to charge more and be profitable rather than to bring value, which drove sales and, and profitability. And it's okay to make money, but there ought to be some value in return other than just a truck backing up and delivering product. And uh, I really think I was one of the forefront of that in our company as we went to that. Uh, and we had success. I think the other distributors around the nation, they had to all of a sudden pour a whole lot more money that way too. And the great sure. thing is now, you're right, all the distributors are, are trying to bring more value, investing in the in the independent restaurant customers for sure, because really their success becomes all of our success if, if they make it in the long haul. Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, the top 200 chains only represent about 20% of the kitchens in this country. And yeah, they're selling a lot of food, right? But those are those contracts are, you know, if you're trying to steal, I don't know, Yum from, you know, Cisco or whoever they have, whatever, I don't know who's got who. But, you know, 
you're trying to steal that contract. That's an enterprise level sales job of seven to 10 years. Like that's a long-term, you know, sale. But you got all these independents there. It's just like small businesses versus corporations, right? It's kind of the same exact, it is exactly the same thing. The small businesses employ 80% of the people, you know, that they have all the jobs that, you know, they're recreating all this stuff. So yeah, it makes Yeah, and the vast sense. majority don't have a culinary trained chef. Uh yeah. the owner operator works it every day. They have less than 20 employees. You know, yeah. it's all those hundreds of thousands out there that we care about because you know, we like the chains and, and the regional groups as well, but they've got a lot of help. And uh, that independent, that entrepreneur, that person that has a dream in the hospitality industry, they don't have a whole lot, you know. Yeah. And uh and that's who we focus on more than anybody else. Yeah, and obviously, yeah, that's where you're going to add so much value. Wow, that's really cool. So just to wrap up question number one for any of you guys that are listening, whether you use U.S. foods, obviously they want you to switch to them, but whether you use, start digging into your broader line distributors and start asking them what service and help they can provide you with, you know, because it is available to you. Yeah, and Tommy, one thing, a lot of people look at the big box distributors like U.S. Foods, that we are just corporate that doesn't care about the independent, but we're full of people like me, little Brian Kirby from Northern Missouri that started as a dishwasher almost 40 years ago. I, I say I work, I, I cherish the independent restaurant uh, industry first and foremost, and then my company, you know? And so uh, using my company in a good way that benefits them, but also helps transform the help and, and the independent industry, you know, a lot of people should not just think that everybody in the big boxes are all out there just for the chains or, or corporate mentality. Most of us grew up in the independent restaurant industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will tell you this as well. Um, back during COVID, so this would have been like, I'm talking March of 20. Um, we got a call from U.S. Foods. I'm, I'm actually searching my email to go see if I can find this guy. I think his name is Adam, maybe Adam Stin. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, he's a director of our Czech business tools, which are our value-added partnership with technology partners around the United States. There you go. So Adam called us, and he was like, because we were one of the first people to, like, our company, we were one of the first people to come out with some COVID stuff. Like, we were doing COVID health screens. I, I had Qdoba doing COVID health screens by, like, the 23rd of March. Oh, wow. I mean, I have millions and millions of COVID health screens. And I was like on, you know, I was talking to the CDC and like I was figuring out everything that you needed to know. Because at the time, we all thought it was just like norovirus. It was an airborne, but also touch as well, which, which obviously they learned over time that it wasn't so much picking up but on surfaces. It was more coughing and breathing and whatnot. But like for COVID, but like he called us, Adam called us and he was like, we want, how do we get your stuff into the hands of our independent operators to give them help during this COVID time, you know? So, I mean, he reached out to us. I mean, I'm looking at this meeting. Uh, this one was in April, but we, we were talking to him very early on. So it was, uh, so it was cool. He was looking for solutions to help the independent restaurants. He wasn't yeah. talking the chains. He was talking the independents. And at that point, we didn't care what benefit there was to U.S. Foods other than the fact it was helping our operators who had a real need and didn't know who to turn to at that moment. And that's a lot that drives us a lot of times. What's best for our customers, we found, uh, uh, is is kind of 
best for uh, you know us in the long run. Uh, I mean, that's why a lot of our consultants, we work so much on cost of goods. Not everybody's ever always worked on cost of goods because that meant fewer cases being ordered. But we're yeah. willing to give we're willing to give that up millions and millions of dollars a year. I hurt my company, you know, by making people uh, become more efficient on their cost of goods usage. And uh, uh, but we end we win in the end, you know. Uh, but as they become more loyal and they stay with us, and sometimes you gain more business that way from other competitors. And uh, so it's kind of at a time where distributors are a lot of times putting out money without asking for anything in return. And then are getting it through, uh, you know, uh, you know, other ways, you know, and, and, and helping folks out. So, well, and if the guy stays a customer for five more years, you know, you get it back that way, too. And Absolutely. So, One thing cool. I forgot to say, Tommy, so people wondered, well, how experienced is this guy as a consultant? I, I have now reached over 2000 different restaurant uh, operations consulted with uh, in 49 states. Um, uh, I was based out of St. Louis, Illinois, before moving out here uh, three years ago. Uh, so I'm, I'm not that smart, but boy, am I experienced. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Cool. So what's the, okay. So let's go to question number two. What's the big project and initiative that you're working on right now? So I'm uh, just finishing up the last couple months on the greatest thing I've ever been involved with in my entire almost 40 year career, Tommy. Um, 24 months ago, um, just, uh, about, uh, 12 days ago. I was at my son's wedding, March 13th, uh, 2020, and went there. And then the world shut down on the way back, uh, after that, uh, that next week in the airport, uh, in, uh, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, I got called by the best restaurateur that I'm personally friends with in Missouri. He's in the restaurant hall of fame. His family has been multi-generations. People come 200 miles around to his restaurant. And he said, I don't have a plan for this. There's no way I can make it. I knew right then and there, if the best restaurateur I personally knew, legendary and famous in a rural area that had a $75 check average per person where nobody else could barely pull off 20 in that area, if he couldn't make it, I knew that the, our, our independent restaurant operators and everybody was in trouble. And at that point, I started advocating for my company that we as a company had to do something to help people navigate uh, on the financial side. And uh, fortunately, my bosses believed in that. And they got me an audience in front of our CEO and our chief legal counsel. And we agreed to start doing weekly webinars. And they gave me 12 full-time restaurant consultants to explain uh, all the federal COVID relief that was coming out, the legislation, how to fill out paperwork, uh, answering all the questions about how not to go to jail. we well, use the money wrong. And thus launched uh, what was supposed to be three months <laughs> of a temporary job and became, I'm just finishing this up. Uh, as we're still working on an ERTC and, and second round PPP forgiveness. But during that time, the last two years, my team found over $2.5 billion in federal relief money that people did not know they qualified for. We, we helped a lot of people that were uh, English as second language. We have uh, Spanish speakers on my team and others and uh, how to fill out their paperwork. Now, a lot of people said that, hey, just go to the NRA webinar or, or the Chamber of Commerce webinar. But our people you know, that a lot of them aren't real good on that stuff. And they saw the paperwork and, and they didn't know how to go about it. Uh, they were told by bank loan officers, wrong things, by their CPAs, wrong things. 
We talked to over a thousand CPAs and how to convince them and show them where the current paperwork with all the changes with, with PPP and R, RRF and idle loans and, and grants and, and ERTC. Uh, I just had the other day convince a CPA for a, a Colorado restaurant that they did qualify for ERTC, even though he told them repeatedly they didn't. And they're getting 250 grand back now. <laughs> and uh, so I never thought this is something we'd ever be doing. But our company said, you know what? You all go out there. And we helped over 21,000 of our customers. And also our CEO said, if anybody calls, even if they're not a customer, help them out. Make sure they get every penny. And so uh, it's the greatest thing that I've ever been a part of. We had people calling, crying that there's no way to make it. They're, they're going to lose their homes and everything. And in so many of those cases, we found a pathway for them and then help them plan how to spend that money in the right way to make a difference. And Tommy, I'm telling you, it was great for a former dishwasher from nowhere, north, northeastern Missouri, to have played a part in giving back to the industry in that way. Oh, man, that that is so cool. Yeah, I mean, nobody knew. Like we, we got PPP in the first round, which I've said this a couple of times on the show. Like Trump, hate Trump, I don't really care. But that the PPP program that the Trump administration rolled out and they did that in weeks was probably the greatest government aid program for business ever. I agree. Like it was so well done, so smart, so easy comparatively to other government red tape, right? I can say it's always easy, but like, like to, to be able to react that quickly and get that money out. And I mean, we didn't fire anyone because we got the money. My wife didn't fire anyone because she got the money. And so they kept people employed and it was, it was absolutely amazing. Yep. So that, that is so cool. And it, well, I, the, the thing that I like the most about what you just said there was your CEO said, I don't care if they're a Cisco customer. If they call this number accidentally, just help them. Just be cool and help them. You know what I mean? Like, we did in thousands of cases, yeah. uh, customers that weren't customers, yeah. but many of them became customers eventually. But that's not why we did it. It was just the right thing to do. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, at some point, like you have to look past your own self-interest and look at the industry as a whole. The industry as a whole goes down. We're all going down. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But that's, but you know, but not everyone thinks that way. And, you know, the reality is, is that your guys' sales went down during that period, probably at some level, you know, Absolutely. at least temporarily until everyone started getting delivery out, you know? So you, so you guys are wrapping up that program now. What's are you just are you back to consulting? Or are you going to do another special project? Yeah, I'm back to the field. Uh, through that, we decided uh, to set up several sub teams with our 60 consultants. So I had a, a group of 12 finance uh, expert rocks that were owners and deep level scientific uh, minded people that can right. go really deep in people's PLs and processes. And so now we have it, we're used to every restaurant consultant kind of took care of their own geographical market. Now sure. we've, we've allowed people in the 49 states we cover, we formed all these teams like marketing teams, finance teams, uh, we, and, 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 and four or five others, menu uh, uh, engineering teams. And uh, folks can uh, uh, call, you know, hook up with us on our nationwide website, book a, a meeting with us for free. You know, all this is free. And uh, and then talk to our best of our best in each of those sub, sub, sub segments and uh, uh, we'll help them go through it. Now, they still have to do most of the work and we'll, but yeah. we'll guide them through an audit and that. And so that's been great. Uh, myself and others 
what we're doing now is we talked about at the show is looking to see, okay, what business models, what labor models, what leadership models, you know, it's never going back to normal. Uh, it's never going to back what it used to be. What are these new chapters? And so we're dedicating a lot of time and study and research to seeing what are these chapters going to be and how to spool out these best practices for the various segments and scenarios so that folks can uh, adopt faster. And so, uh, so we're doing a lot of educational things and that to really dig in because we're seeing the greatest disruption. It wasn't just during the, the main COVID part. This aftermath is it's settling itself out is going to be all new land. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like when people went out West to stake their homestead, people got to, you know, they're, they're, they're still not finished in that. Some people are still hoping for normalcy to return. It never is going to. So helping no. them transition and what to that's, that's the next great thing, Tommy. Well, and technology is accelerating everything. And then there was such a rapid technology, technology adoption in COVID for everybody who had kind of, put their head in the sand around delivery and having a little bit of better PLS and, you know, on, uh, online and some of those things, right? Like they all adopted that technology very quickly when they had to. Um, but now that they've got these stakes in the technology, the technology is going to continue to make the industry change. It's interesting because um, there's a Denny's that was a Denny's in our area. Then it stopped being a Denny's and four other guys went into that building and failed. And now it's a Denny's again, hmm. but it, I was looking at DoorDash today because we were going to order lunch, and uh, and I was like, wait a second, I'm starting to see some of Denny's other brands. You know, Denny's has a melt brand and a burger brand and some other things that they're just cooking out of their kitchen. I was like a ghost kitchen in every Denny's, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden those guys started showing up on my DoorDash, and I was just like giggling about it. But that's a thing where like technology is going to continue to shape and change this business. And, and, you know, it's going to put more and more pressure on these independents because they don't have, they don't have a guy who's just sitting around looking at this stuff, you know, no. that guy is them at 11 o'clock at night while servers are cashing out, you know what I mean? So it's tough. Yeah. It's amazing that before people would even think technology. Now they were forced to for at least their, uh, their curbside pickup or delivery. Yeah. Uh, it's a whole nother thing and we're enjoying it because used to, we had to try to spend all this time convincing them they needed to adopt technology. Now they're open to it. Uh, but now, uh, getting them hooked up with the right platform to meet their needs, uh, as and a lot of its integration, the fewest platforms are that is wholly integrated, but they're everything else. Uh, it's fun, you know, because now yeah. they're wanting it and, and now just hooking them up. Now, some cases we had to slow people down because they want to adopt three or four new pieces of technology right now and they yeah, can't no. support that. So sometimes pulling the reins back a little bit and get them to do one after the other, you know, and do it smart. Yeah. Well, the hardest thing for people to do is is successfully implement a new software platform because it really takes it really touches on so many different aspects of the business training and operations and it and you know rolling that stuff out either if it's one restaurant or a thousand it's always a challenge and you know the if you when you if you biff it you know you're just paying what they call shelfware you know yeah and you don't want that um what is the one to question number three what is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night labor yeah 
You know, when I started almost 40 years ago, I was trained by lifers, people that were proud that raised their families in the industry, you know, 60-year-old servers and 50-some-year-old cooks, and they weren't ashamed to be in the business, and they were known around the area as being the best at what they do, and I was raised in that culture, and I took a lot of pride in it, but seeing where labor has gone in our industry as chains grew rapidly in the late 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and then a lot of independent restaurateurs they freaked out and they they forgot about how important labor is a lot of times. And really, this industry became uh, where nobody wanted to work in it anymore. Or they it, it was looked upon down upon for a lot of people. And, and those of us that love it, we didn't look that way. But now COVID brought that to light. And what I'm, I'm happy with COVID, I think it might have burned it down for good. So now operators have to reinvent what their labor models are going to be, what their culture is going to be, how they're going to lead these people uh, in, in order to just field a team and field a team as good as their competition to stay in it. But, but the fact of the matter is I'm seeing famous restaurants uh, fail uh, almost every other week because they can't figure out the new labor. And they all say, I can't find the help, yet I find my best restaurants. You know what? They have full staffs. They have happy yeah. staffs. They they are retaining people. They are the continuous learning and, and investment in them. And so the, the people that invested heavily in culture before are really paying the dividends right now. But unfortunately, that's not the vast amount of our industry. And so now people that are used to saying, you're lucky to work for me, are having to learn uh, to know that I don't interview you. You're interviewing me to see if you want to work for me and believe in the causes I believe in. I got to start marketing to you like I market to my customers and give you the why, what's in it for you. And a lot of our operators, people of my kind of tenure, 40 years, a lot of my friends are struggling with that and they've got to make the transition. Yeah. I call them dinosaur operators, you know, and they're just, they just like, they came up in the eighties and the seventies, late seventies, eighties, nineties. And we just don't live in that world anymore. And I mean, millennials are like a Rubik's cube to these guys that they can't understand any part of the millennial. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and it's, but you know, you touched on something that I just want to put out there because it is so true. The good restaurants have people, right? And, and absolutely, or I would say the well-run restaurants have people. They might not necessarily be good at what they do, but like their food might not be good. But the well-run restaurants have people, and it's because they. I would suggest they're busy usually because I don't, I, in most cases, most restaurant people don't want to stand around. So they will not stay in a slow restaurant. Um, and if you have a bunch of employees that are okay staying in your slow restaurant, then they have to be, they're the reason your business is slow because you don't, no real restaurant employee can handle being slow. It drives them nuts. Um, but yeah, the good people have, the good restaurants have people. Because I hear people telling that all the time, you know, like there's a mod pizza and I, I was hanging out with a guy playing poker at some event. And, you know, he's like, we really struggle to get employees in our like in the store in my area, which is South Denver in the suburbs. But then there's a Chick-fil-A in the same strip center, maybe a quarter of a mile away. And the Chick-fil-A has got like 25 like high school kids like in the like, like in the line that they literally walk up to your car. You know, they're taking five or six orders simultaneously. There's five of them out there. It's like snowing outside and they have like <laughs> heaters 
and they're out there all wearing Chick-fil-A jackets, you know, taking orders. And I'm like, so I get that you're, you know, so you have to look at it and go, okay. Yeah, they look what nice, they doing good different? hygiene, all that. Yeah, they take pride clean. in their job. Yeah, exactly. They, they are like the uh, McDonald's employees of the 1960s. You know, like we're not with like a career job. But it, it's amazing. And like, yeah, I just, uh, yeah. And so the industry, if we're going to have human beings, which I would suggest we have to have a certain amount of human beings. I know that they're telling us they can have restaurants that are all by robots. But I don't see it. I mean, I, I think it will happen for sure in the next 20 or 30 years, but not today when you can't get most of these guys to even like implement any piece of software, you know, yep. <laughs> like, yep. like your doctor's going to flip it automatically to robots. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, the good people have the good people have employees. And what we need to figure out as an industry is what, why do they have them? How are they treating them? What are they paying them? What benefits matter to them? Um, because, and also we, we have to look at that, but then we also have to look at, do I need, you know, so like you think about a normal way to rush it. So I used to manage a PF Chang's as a floor manager, you know, and we had, you know, 12 servers, six bussers, uh, four or five food runners uh, at every shift, three or four hostesses, you know, lunch, dinner, doesn't matter, right? And do you need like, do you need everybody to show up at 10 a.m.? Or can we have a couple of people show up at 10 a.m. and start getting everything ready? Mm -hmm. And then 20 guys show up at like 1145 for literally two hours, wait on your tables. And as soon as it gets slow, you cut them. They don't have any side work. They, they pack cash out. They leave and go drive Uber. Mm -hmm. Can we do that model? Can we have, a model where we have some professional employees and a bunch of like just gig employees and make that work, you know? Well, we're going to have to, or yeah. independents just aren't going to make it, you know? And yeah. uh, as the independents uh, weaken, uh, and I have nothing against chains, uh, but the chains will strengthen and, uh, and they'll make that gap even greater between the two. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a time for new culture, engagement culture, rather than, uh, reactive culture, proactive management, uh, investing in them, uh, continuously, uh, yeah. Spending the time on the employees, the amount of time, keeping them happy and engaged. And as you said, take away the things that cause them stress, like, like end of shift cleaning and side work and that find a way to find other people to pick that up and, and, and make their life. And don't be calling them in. You have a loyal employee. Don't be calling them in every day of the week and burning them out. You can't do that anymore. Yeah. Oh man, that was the worst. Yeah, no, you're right. And like, there's so many like little things you can do, like ketchup packets or like, or ramekins of ketchup if you're a fancy restaurant versus ketchup bottles. You know what I mean? Ramekins of salt and pepper where you don't like, you just scoop a little and put it in there and walk it out versus, you know, someone sitting around marrying ketchup for seven hours, you know, not getting paid for it. You know, there's just, there's, there's yeah. operational things we can change. I have people that tell me I can't afford to hire cleaning services at the end of the shift. I don't have the money for that. I've said, you're, you're running 160% turnover. Yeah. <laughs> if you cut that turnover, you're going to have plenty of money for that and much more, but not turning over the rate you're right. You're doing right now. Well, turnover is the most expensive 
thing. I bet you if you look at turnover, because what do they say? That number is like 3K, I think. Yep. To hire and train a new employee. Like if you can just cut that number down by just being a decent human being and saying thank you to people and like treating them well, you know, you just do that. You think about it, you said 50K. I'm like, food costs a good sold. You know, you get your turnover down. It could be a couple hundred thousand a year, depending on how much you're you're flowing through that thing. Absolutely. And that's why like the Me Too movement did us a favor and exposed a lot of sexual harassment and and good old boy stuff still in the industry. And then COVID uh, has, has exposed all this. Between all of it, I am thinking uh, it's really going to eventually lead to enough changes to where our industry will be looked upon in a much better light and attract more workers who right now aren't even looking at and considering it even for a part-time job. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting too is like, and I, and I've said this, uh, but I haven't said it recently, but I've said it a bunch of times on this podcast. I really do feel like the NRA is doing us a giant disservice in that like their job is to promote the restaurant industry and they focus mostly on the Congress and the government, mm -hmm. but there should be something like they should be interviewing all of these like famous people and sports stars. And what was your first job? I was a burger flipper at McDonald's. I made subs, you know, I made pizzas at pizza. I was a delivery driver. Like, like, like this is an industry where you can have a lifelong career. You started as a dishwasher. Let's just be honest, not the top of the totem pole. And now 40 years later, you're making a great money. You're impacting the industry. You're helping people. And you've had a great career. And guess what? You didn't, you remember really for the most of your career, had a desk job. You know what I mean? You weren't saddled in the cubicle the whole time, you know? Yeah. Like, it's a great career. I mean, there's no more American dream, true American dream left like there is the restaurant industry where somebody can come from nowhere like I did from a poor family. It paid for my college and my wife's college her last year. And then everything else stayed in it and, and has opened up my dreams to move where I want. Uh, yeah, we need to hear more stories from that and repaint the the industry and that image about the good stuff about it and what you can yeah. get from it. Uh, where where nobody from nowhere can get as much as what they want and go as far as they want to, uh, regardless if they have a college degree or not. Uh, that's the awesome thing. And, and the fact that how many women in, are successful in it and ethnic groups and that, we're the greatest American story still left, I think. I would totally agree. Um, all right, let's go to question number four. What is the one thing you thought the industry would be doing right now that it isn't? This is probably be near and dear to your heart, and that is all those years ago, you know, when I was discovering the science of the industry and having to build on Quattro Pro and then Excel and Ledgers, and, and now the software that does all that so easily, other than the administration, the setup, as you've, you've said, just a little bit. But just to see how much chain-like stuff is available, even for a single unit operator, to manage their, their key, their their prime cost, labor, and and uh, and cost of goods for sure, uh, and and really their P and L, how all that's there and integrated with the POS system and so many other things, I cannot believe that more people are not reaching for that. I understand why because of, uh, of their doubts and, and, and all different types of things. But with it being so easy, when it used to be so hard, Tommy, I just yeah. can't believe it because the, 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 the software of today is pretty darn easy. Oh, man. Well, you know, cloud software, I, I remember, and this is interesting because we've been doing this since 2015, 
And prior to that, we had a software company, but we they sold, we were implementers of what you call on-prem software, meaning mm-hmm. that you know you installed it on your server and then ran it, right? POSs are still on-prem a lot of the time because they have a box in the back, right? But like, um, but cloud. The greatest thing about cloud software is that a the like an on-prem software, like back in the day software, I could sell you the software, and then it was up to you to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in the software industry, they loved that for a long period of time because it wasn't, hey, well, you shouldn't have configured your computer like that. So that's why our software is not working. Tough titties for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like now it, it's totally different. I have to deliver you software that's running all of the time. Right. And so now the customer, the end user, they have such a better experience with software than they ever had before. Um, it's so much more robust. This, and I remember when we first started too, everybody was complaining like, ah, oh, yeah, you, well, you want another $50 a month. Everybody wants $50 <laughs> a month. Everybody wants $50 a month. And I was just like, well, yeah, but the software costs millions of dollars to make. So yeah, they do want 50 bucks a month for it. But instead you're actually getting software that's running that you can use, you can get help with. You know, like you can, it's just such a better model because also the software is constantly being innovated because of competition between ourselves. We can't just sit on our butts and go, Hey, we're going to do another ops analytica release in 2024. So we'll see you then. You know what I mean? Like I'm literally releasing software all the time, like just little updates and fixes and you know, whatever it is. It's crazy. It's so much better for everybody. And I will also say this too. If at this point, because you're right, it is so accessible. Every part of it's accessible. Like if you think about this, like think about how much money Domino's and Pizza Hut invested in online ordering in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. They probably spent millions and millions of dollars building out those original portals. And they didn't even have all the technology. They had to get mapping technologies and all these things, right? That now just exists. And you can get that same level 10,000 times better than what they had in the early, late 90s, early 2000s for like 19 bucks a month, you know? Oh, the, the bargain of it and the customer help, you're right. Uh, and how much easier they made imports and different things. Uh, I can't believe it. I mean, it's a wonderful age and, and people are willing to discuss it now where they weren't because of what's happening in COVID, but it's still, people need that to their bottom line right now. And the help is there. And, yeah. and, and, and y'all have made it democratic. We're used to is only designed for the chains and getting in and they yeah. had all these administrators. I believe it's been democratized now and, and really any independent operator can take advantage of it if they want to. Yeah. And, and if they don't have it, so if you still have to call your favorite pizza place versus going online, that's a choice that they've made. Mm-hmm. They've literally said, nah, I don't want to do this. And, and it's going to be the death of them because we're not going back to less convenient. Like there are some places that for whatever reason, mythology, I'll say mythology, really, in and out Burger. You know, now we have like four or five in and out Burgers in Colorado because we both live in, in Colorado. We have one in Lone Tree. People are still willing to wait 30, 40, 50 minutes for In-N-Out Burger. And and by the way, that's true in Venice, California, where they've had it for 50 years. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there are certain places where for whatever reason, we're willing to put up with inconvenience, but it, that is the minority of places. You know what I mean? 
Well, that, that's one percent. And, and why I think you know, like software solution, like your companies and others, you know, I'm having all over the nation myself a legendary five unit group uh, in the Colorado area, legendary huge volume, made 22% profit pre-COVID, making 3% right now, and their sales have finally recovered. They're making 3.2% 3, 3 profit. Well, they always had, they were the you know attractive group and all that type of stuff. Uh, they've always had everything, but now uh, the expenses have climbed so rapidly that the only way they're going to be able to get it is to start using all the science and uh, and to recover that and and they'll recover it over time but they can recover it a lot faster if they get heavily involved and they they know all their plate costs they know their inventory they know uh where their variances are and all that and so I, I, what i tell a lot of people you know it's not going to be as profitable as it was for a while that's going to take a long recovery but because you haven't used all the science if you do and involve software solutions, you can accelerate that and, and at least fill in the gap quite a bit until the rest figures itself out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. The technology is just, it's here to stay. It's only going to get more and you're going to have to figure out how you're going to implement it in your business. And here's what I can tell you. This is my theory and I could be completely wrong here. Well, it'll be proven out in the next couple of years. I believe that if you look at the last 10 years, the, the push for technology in the restaurant space over the last 10 years was all about sales and sales channels. So it was all uh, web ordering, having an app, uh, carry out, implementing delivery, either yourself or through DoorDash and all the other vendors, whatever, and getting your POS so it could handle all of that sale information coming in and get one ticket that pops out so that the guys in the back know what to cook, right? And that's mm -hmm. what everybody spend their time on. And, and I mean, we would call on people in 2015, 2016, 2017, and they'd be like, this is really interesting, right? But ultimately they were like, yeah, but right now we're in the middle of a POS project or we're getting our app redone or we're about to launch this new internal app or, you know, it was always about the sales stuff, right? Yep. And, and then 2019, 2020, that also, that excuse became less and less and less, which tells me that the everybody that we were talking to had kind of solved that problem. And now we're looking on to, okay, what do we do next? Operations management, which is what I, which is what we do, right? We help yep. manage and direct the employees uh, just like the POS helps manage and direct the sales uh, and the order, like pushing the order out. We do sort of the same thing, but we do it with the employees. I personally believe that is the next battleground for restaurants because what's happening is this. I, I have a thousand choices. Uh, you, you know, there's no such thing as that's the steak place anymore. I can get a steak anywhere. I can get mm -hmm. a burger anywhere. I can get fish anywhere, mac and cheese, you name it. And so I, you have more competition. You have, uh, you know, as people use more and more commissaries, the food becomes more, you know, normalized across the board. So you're going to see less and less variation. You're going to see some amount of less variation, more competition. And what it's going to really start coming down to is it's going to come back to, which it hasn't been focused on in a long time. It's going to come back to operations. Who can do a better job of controlling what they can control and giving me a great experience and delivering me what they promised they were gonna deliver me 
who's going to do that better for me with all the convenience and ease that you guys have built into your platform in the last five years. That's the new battleground. And the guys right. that are controlling what they can control and operating better, they are going to incrementally grow while their competitors stay the same. And then next thing you know, they're going to be opening up their second location. They're going to get an end cap. They're going to run a BOGO or start doing Facebook ads or whatever it is. Yep. And you're going to start to see a gap in my opinion of the well, the best operating businesses are going to start just towering over their competitors and the competitors are going to be so busy with their antiquated BS that they're just going to look up one day and go, how is Tommy's rig shop open three new locations? Why does he have a line out the door when my ribs are better and I can't move these things? And it's because I'm controlling what I can control, you know, and, and that's, I think, where we're going to see a major focus and, and an explosion. And in addition to that, systems like ours, eventually you're going to have to start coordinating robots and other, all these different entities are going to have to be coordinated by some platform. You know, you can't just have a guy next to a robot and just expect that they're both going to know what to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's an exciting time because the science is going new directions after being somewhat stagnant for a long time. So, yeah. uh, and that's where we're situated with our 60-some boots-on-the-ground consultants is to help right. accelerate that for those that are will accept it, you know, and uh, and to help yeah. them with that. And uh, uh, and a lot of them are doing that. We're trying to convince more. That's always part of it is we go to everyone that raises their hands, but then we try to convince the others while there's still yet time. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting because when I went to Quiznos, 90% of the people who needed my help called me when it was too late. They literally called me when they were like, dude, you got to give me 4,500 bucks so I can make my rent. <laughs> yep. No, I'm not allowed to do that, sir. But you know, they called me on that day. I'm going to get evicted if you don't send me 4,500 bucks like hmm. now. And it's like, no, you got to get people a year. Like, Hey, do you see that your trends kind of going down a little bit? We, and I'm sure you guys can look at their orders. Absolutely. I'm sure you guys can look at their order data and go, wait, I, I see a downward trend. This guy's ordering less and less, which either means he's got another distributor, which, you know, let's be honest, probably doesn't happen. They're not, you're not splitting distributors. But then, um, so his sales are suffering. So you guys can identify people a year out yeah. and go, hey, we got to get in here and help you, man. We, we deploy our restaurant operation consultants simply because of that a lot of times. So. Um, we see a customer that's either struggling or they're going to another vendor, either or. Uh, either way, it's all about they're not making enough money. You know, yeah. it's not because of prices, it's because they're not making enough money. And so they're trying to look for a way to make that money. They think they can do it with another vendor and ignore all the big where the, the big pots are. And uh, yeah, so those metrics, I mean, we're, we're absolutely an insanely intense data mining company, you know, uh, that's trying to be proactive with our customers at every step of the, at every way. So, well, and you know, it's interesting too, and this is like, so, I mean, I don't know that this is just restaurant tours. One of the other things that we didn't really touch on earlier that really makes the restaurant industry as hard as it is. So this could be the fifth reason, if we want to add a fifth reason is that we're open 300, like you worked in 24 seven, 365, but most people were open 363, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> like 7 a.m. to midnight at least, or some variation of those hours. So like these guys don't ever, there's no downtime. Like, you know, when you can go home on Saturday and while you're mowing your grass, you can go, oh, I should have tried that with that guy. 
Mm-hmm. But but when you're a restaurant and you're open 363 days a year, you never get that downtime. You just no. so you never have a chance to step back and take a look at things from a 30,000 foot level or just take a, you know, and really go, yeah. okay, what do I strategically got to do here? And, um, well, they get ground down and, and really yeah. that's the secret of a great restaurant consultant is not knowing it all, but a great restaurant consultant tries to get that energy and that courage, emotional energy and courage back in that operator to go forward, you know, to make improvements. And, and the better yeah. ones are really successful at that because a lot of them just need encouragement. They need to know it can be done and they can do it and you'll help them. Uh, you're right. They get so ground down. They can't see it anymore or, or they feel it's a losing cause and getting them up and running again is, ha- is most of the battle. Well, yeah, because it's like, you need to go do this analysis really quickly and figure out which items you need to cut from this menu. You're right. I do need to do that. But guess what? Three people know called no show. So before I have time to do that, I'm going to go over here and do this instead, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's what, I mean, you know, we all fall into that trap. So it is definitely like it, it. Yeah, it's tough. And that's where having that consultant come in and go, Hey, look, I'm going to get Bob on the line and he's going to get you set up on this new software. You're going to pay for it, but we'll make sure that we get you set up correctly. And, you know, and by the way, that's one of the big things we do is we have implementation packages. So we go and we, we, we turn, when we turn the software over to our clients, just as an example, it's ready to go perfectly configured. And if they need any changes, they get 90 days of additional, Hey, any change you need? Oh, we didn't, well, we guessed that we liked it this way, but we don't think we like it this way. We're going to go that way. Send it over. We'll make the changes for you. No problems. That's you an awesome, I mean? awesome model because that takes care of the chief objection of why they can't do it. I just don't have the time to get it up and going. Yeah. Well, you know, I, think, I talked to this guy out of Michigan one time. They had like 19. They had 19 restaurants. I don't know what they have now. Uh, we're not in all of them. But I was talking to him, and he's like, you know, we do all this software. But he's like, you know, 80% of it, they ask us to set it up ourselves. We do a piss poor, horrible job of it. And then it ends up not being used at all. And it ends up sitting on a shelf. And then we end up getting rid of it. And he like articulated that so perfectly. And that's always been the battle with all software. Software only delivers a return on investment if people use it, you know? So, you know, uh, we've gone over our hour. So, but I want to get our last question in for sure, which is a war story. This can be any kind of war story you want it to be. It could be funny. It can be cringeworthy. It can be from this job. It can be from your last job. I just want one of those great, I can't believe we got through this. I can't believe this happened stories. Yeah. So it's the only time I almost left the industry in my 39 years. Uh, the only time it was the bellwether mark for me. Um, I graduated college with my teaching degree and I decided to stay in the business, uh, even though teachers, which may not be paid that well, sure have a lot more downtime. Uh, benefits. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, the year after, and it was graduation weekend at Truman State University in Northeast Missouri. And uh, uh, it's by far the biggest weekend of our year in the town's year. And uh, uh, I went in uh, Friday morning, uh, thinking I'd have a light day and then hit it hard on Saturday and Sunday we would just be absolutely killed uh, because it, it was also Mother's Day on Sunday as well. So that made oh, it wow. supercharged even more. Uh, and then the call-in started. It, it, a flu bug hit the town. 
And uh, uh, I had uh, a lot of my evening shift that, that called off. Okay, well, that's another shift I'm going to be working. So, you know, I cooked that. And then uh, we were open all nine. Of course, they were partying hardy, you know, it was a graduation weekend. And, you know, we were expecting 900 people in eight hours, you know, at that diner uh, uh, that night. And uh, I had another full four people call off. So I'm like, well, looks like I'm in for a 24-hour shift, which I have done many of those when back in the day. That's the kind of commitment an independent restaurant taste because when it comes down to it, you're the last resource and it stops with you because you yeah. got no one to go with. And uh, uh, as the as the late night went on, it, it became comical because they started calling in at 2.30 in the morning for the morning shift uh, the next day. And I lost another five there. Um, for as all said and done, uh, I left uh, finally at uh, uh, 7.08 on Sunday evening when I left that restaurant, having arrived there at 6.30 a.m. on Friday morning. What? Yep. Now, wow. I don't advise anybody to do that with their career, but it was one thing after the other, after the other, after the other. And I was young. I was tough. I had a lot of coffee. Uh, and, and and we have eight positions in that restaurant. I worked at all eight of them at least two hours each uh, during that strand. And it was kind of funny because the employees even felt sorry for me. And, and those that could were staying for extra shifts, too. So, you know, there just wasn't enough to, to meet the demand. And we definitely needed the, the windfall from that. Uh, it was one thing after another. But the, the bellwether moment came for me at, uh, at about 630 in the evening on Sunday. And most of the business had declined at that point. I, I did a trash, final trash run. And uh uh, I went outside to sling this overly loaded trash bag up into the oh, when it ripped. When it split completely open, was probably a hundred pounds of trash in there, wet trash. Uh. Went all over me, the parking lot, it was windy. And at that point, I looked at it and I almost walked away, Tommy. <laughs> I was so weak and so exhausted and so beaten. But I turned around and one of my morning waitresses just happened to to be there to eat that night for whatever reason. And I saw Sharon look at me with her look of like, what are you going to do now? Yeah. And at that point, it instilled in me that extra spark to suck it up and to scoop that stuff up with my hands and shovel and to hold my head high, knowing that I completed a, a, a monumental thing that very few people have ever done in the, the restaurant industry that many hours without going home. And I'm not proud of it. It, it was necessary. Uh, but it was that bellwether moment of surviving that trash and her, and her scrutiny of me uh, and her look of disdain at me uh, that now 39, you know, 30 some years later, here I still am. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, and nothing else I've ever faced, U.S. foods, anywhere else, has ever come to how I was challenged. I guess like SEAL training, that was my SEAL training hazing. <laughs> After that, everything I could put in perspective. So that's my war story, Tommy. That's a great one. Wow. So what? So it was almost one full day. Two, so it was like 50-some hours straight. Yeah, I mean, there was times of sitting down and probably some oh, cat course. naps, 10 minutes here and there, and then they would get busy and orders would pop up or whatever. Uh, so there were some times down, bathroom breaks and a few meal breaks and lots of coffee breaks. Uh, but yeah, it was continuous 50-some hours on duty. Wow, that's nuts. Well, stupid and nuts, but that's what it took. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, that's not everyone's willing to do that. 
I feel like the people who are, which you should like, I, I pulled so many all nighters getting this company spun up. And, and I just, when I sell this company for a lot of money at some time near in the future, mm -hmm. not near future in the future. And I'll be able to look it back and go, the reason why I, I earned this money because I, there were so many days when I was sitting in my office at four 30 in the morning, staring out the window at all my neighbors sleeping, you know what I mean? And I'll be like that. That's why I'm here today. You know, Absolutely. So, this industry is demanding and it takes commitment. Unlike probably almost anything else, but it's also given me everything I have. And, and I'm so grateful for it. Absolutely. Well, Brian Kirby, uh, thank you so much. I'm going to put the, you'll get me the link for the U.S. Foods Consulting webpage so I can get that up on the show notes. Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for be taking your time today and being on the show. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll be back with some new interviews soon. Thank you, Tommy. Oh, you're welcome.